When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. everyone. Thank you for joining me on today's edition of the Janice Dean Podcast. And I hope your Christmas was wonderful. As we head into a new year, I find myself looking back at some of the important moments in 2022. On September 11th this year, I was invited to attend a ceremony with our former New York governor, George Pataki. I was honored to be one of five people chosen to receive his annual Freedom Award for the advocacy I've done over the last several years on behalf of families whose loved ones died after contracting COVID-19 in nursing homes. I've met Governor Pataki several times over the years, and what has stood out the most about him is he genuinely is a really good human being, and I believe went into government for the right reasons. He wanted to be a leader to help the people of New York during a time when there was a lot of discontent with the way things were being run by the governor before him. George started out as an attorney and decided to get into politics running for mayor of his hometown of Peekskill, New York. After that, he was in the state assembly and then the state senate. In 1994, he ran for governor and defeated three-term incumbent Mario Cuomo and served three consecutive terms. Being a Republican governor was no small feat in New York State. He was the third Republican since 1923 to win New York's governorship after Thomas E. Dewey and Nelson Rockefeller. I know this podcast tends to steer clear of politics, but when I talk to Governor Pataki about his life, career, and the incredible things the Pataki Center is doing right now, I invited him to come on the program because I really do believe he is someone that cares about the world, his country, and the state of New York. And when I asked him if he would come on the podcast, he immediately said yes. And I'm so grateful. I think you'll enjoy our conversation. Here is the 53rd governor of New York, my friend, George Pataki. Governor Pataki, thank you so much for joining me. It's great to be on, Janice. Thank you for having me. I always say the person that comes into the studio to be on the Janice Dean podcast gets to be on the Dean's list. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm sure you've been there before. Not for a long time, but, <laughs> but I was a while back, yes. I mean, you're schooling. You have an impressive resume. I, I got a good education. I, you know, I had parents who understood the importance of education and schools that actually worked. And, yeah. and it would be nice to have public schools that work again now. Mm. Well, tell me about that. I mean, you know, going back to when you went to school and your parents reinforced that importance in schooling and to get a good education. Where are we right now in that? You know, I think it's tragic what you, when you look at uh, particularly inner city schools. I was just reading something where in New York State in Rochester, 4% of the students can do math at the fourth grade level. Uh, and, and you know, the, I don't mean to get overly political, but Democrats always talk about income inequality and we need equity. 
it starts with education, and yes. they're the ones who require largely poor minority kids to go to failing schools that they know aren't going to be able to educate the student. And it's just a crime. You know, mm -hmm. we passed uh, charter schools. They're doing quite well, but there aren't enough. And yeah. between the teachers union and the Democratic politicians, they're just extremely reluctant is a kind word to allow the, the parents to have another opportunity for their kids. And mm -hmm. they, it's one of many failings of big government that talks out of one side of its mouth, but its policies have the exact opposite uh, consequences. I think the, the pandemic highlighted a lot of that for us parents. And I'm not a political person either, but my husband and I had to decide whether or not to keep our kids in public school when my youngest son could not handle the online learning. He would have meltdowns, panic attacks, couldn't handle hearing the, the teachers and the students all at the same time. And we heard in our neighborhood that the Catholic schools were doing it. They were doing, they were closed one day. And I've talked about that a lot in on the podcast because parents like us during the pandemic knew that it was important, or at least, at least my family knew that it was important to keep our kids in school. Well, you made the right choice. And, uh, you know, you mentioned your kids. I have uh, uh, 10 grandkids. I'm very lucky. Aww, congratulations. And a couple of them were having the same thing. They yeah. just couldn't do it. Nope. And, and they essentially lost a year of learning because of it. And the Catholic schools did stay they open. Did. The government tried to shut them down, but they didn't succeed. The Catholic Church actually had to sue the state uh, probably a dozen times, and they won virtually every lawsuit. Uh, and it just shows that when you have central government that dictates policy for every single person across the country on something like this, uh, it doesn't work. Mm -hmm. And it didn't work with education of the kids. And uh, it's just it's just sad. But we have to look forward, learn from this, don't make the same mistakes again, mm -hmm. and change what is broken. And that public education in our cities is clearly broken. Well, here's what I'm afraid of, because not only did we have problems with the kids in schools, but we had problems with our elderly in nursing homes, which is something you know that I'm very passionate about. And we have to have an after-action review on what happened in the pandemic. We have to, Governor, but I don't believe that Kathy Hochul is going to do that. I don't either, and you're absolutely right. You know, 18,000 nursing home deaths because of COVID, including uh, your, your family, and it's just tragic, and it was totally unnecessary. And at the time, people were saying this is an insane policy. Yes. Uh, and, and, and yet uh, Cuomo, Andrew Cuomo, just refused to listen and continue to do it uh, with tragic consequences. And... Uh, Looking back, not to cast blame, but to look what was done wrong so yes. we don't make that same mistake is absolutely critical. And yet, because of the political implications, it's an all-democratic government, and they're the ones who screwed up. I just don't see this administration willing to do that. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm hopeful that maybe they will in Congress when when January comes around. I hope that there is accountability. I Well, at least... A, a forum where we can look back at what happened. I did read that they're looking at sort of like a 9-11 style commission uh, and looking back at what happened during the pandemic. But that hasn't moved forward either, which is scary to me. It's very scary. That's exactly what we need is a bipartisan, serious effort to study what we did right, which I don't think was very much, and what we did wrong, which I think was a great deal. But uh, that requires the political leaders to work together across party lines. And uh, there's just such a partisan approach, not just uh, uh, 
among the political leaders, but in so much of the media, they just uh, don't want to look at what mistakes were made. They want mm-hmm. to pretend nothing went wrong. And I'll just tell you one story. Yes. Uh, my wife and I hated being locked down in New York. It was just dreadful, you know, and I think everybody realizes that. The day after we got our second vaccine shot, we flew to Florida. And it was like going from East Berlin to West Berlin. It was New York was this gloomy, shut down, horrible place. We get to Florida. The restaurants are open. There are bands playing. People are all over the place. Uh, and it didn't have to be that way. Yeah. Uh, and But we're going to do it again. We're going to make the same mistake unless we take a hard look at what worked and what didn't work. Mm-hmm. How do you handle, you know, you were you were governor here in New York for 12 years. How do you like do you sit there and go, "Oh, if I was only in power, I would do this." And why aren't was why aren't they doing this? I mean, is it hard for you? It's very hard. <laughs> I'll tell you, really, because, I mean, I spent most of my adult life trying to make New York a better place. Yeah. And I look at it now and you just can't help but cringe. Yeah. I mean, we were the most People forget, when I took office, New York was the most dangerous state in America. We were, crime was through the roof. Yeah. Uh, And it was a brutal fight uh, with the Democrats in the legislature to pass. We passed over 100 different criminal justice reforms. When I left, we were the safest big state and the third safest state in America. And, you know, that was brutally hard. And you look back and say, oh, thank God, how many lives, literally thousands of lives were saved because we didn't have the level of street violence that we did when I took office. And you look at it today, they're doing the same things that made New York the most dangerous state in America back in the early 90s. And you think... What are they thinking? You know, we tried this once. It didn't work. Yeah. Uh, and you see the the horrible criminal incidents. And one of the things to me that's most inexcusable, the left is doing it in the name of social justice. The vast majority of the victims are low-income minority African-Americans, Latinos. You know, if, if you take Uber or have a doorman at your apartment, you're going to be relatively safe. But if you're taking the subway home at midnight after working the 4 to 12 shift, those are the people who are at risk. And it's it's... It's tragic. It is just brain dead because they had two models, one that worked and one that didn't. And they're imposing the one that didn't work on New York again. So it makes me extremely frustrated. And you wonder, you know, why did I spend all this time trying to change things? But but you have to look back and say, well, we did save all those lives. We did make New York an infinitely safer place. It's still not as bad as it was when I took office because some of those reforms are still in place. And uh, and the hope that common sense and wisdom will again rule the day, Mm -hmm. although I'm not holding my breath. What was the secret sauce uh, for a Republican uh, to become governor in a Democratic state? You had to have a lot of Democrats take a look at you and say, hey, this person makes sense and is right. And I had the issues. I had crime, uh, as we did this time, as an issue. And the, the, the public at large, not Republicans or conservatives, but Democrats and liberals took a look and said, the criminal justice system is failing. He's right. We do need to reform it. And I think people are starting to think that again today. Our economy was horrible. We were last in the country in private sector jobs and first in taxes. Uh, and we're approaching that again, you know, where, where our economy is not what it should be. And the tax burden is just horrific. And mm-hmm. Uh, the number of people, not just because of COVID, but because of economics who have left New York for Florida or Texas is, is just unsustainable. So uh, you have to have issues that people understand affect their lives and that cross party lines. Uh, and we had them when I ran and we have them again now. So so 
hopefully someone who uh, has a vision as to how we can turn New York around and it needs to be turned around uh, will uh, pick up the, the baton and try again. Mm-hmm. And so what are you up to now? I mean, you still obviously are thinking about what's going on here in New York, uh, and you're making a difference with your foundation, right? Well, you know, we're trying hard to to help the people of Ukraine. And I laugh when people call it a foundation. Foundations have money. We're a charity. <laughs> if, we, if we have a project that we want to work on, we have to go out there and beg. And uh, like I just came back the last few weeks from Ukraine again. It was the first trip that the Pataki Center has made. Uh, and we got a request through a Catholic charity in Hungary. And we've been using the Hungarian border to go into Ukraine. Uh, for, that they desperately needed large-scale heaters. So we were able to find 15 industrial-sized heaters, each of which is capable of heating four large apartment houses. Wow. Uh, and we raised the funds to buy them, uh, took them into Ukraine, turned them over to the Ukrainian government. And originally, when, it had, when the request came, they were going to take them to Odessa, uh, but then Zelensky intelligently is understanding the, the, the horrible winter that so many Ukrainians are facing without power and heat is creating what he calls resiliency centers where people without power heat can go and get be in a place that's heated and recharge phones or have an elect, access to electric uh, uh, sources. And a number of our heaters are going to be used for those resiliency centers. So. Uh, it just makes me very proud that our little group, with the help of a lot of good people, are able to help literally tens of thousands of Ukrainians have heat this winter who otherwise wouldn't have it. But it also makes me gets me upset that this is the fifth trip people from the Pataki Center have made since the war. It was my third trip since the war, and we don't see any signs of American humanitarian aid. You know, you read about the billions passed in humanitarian aid. We haven't seen it. And you talk to the Ukrainians, uh, um, they're not going to criticize America because they need our help. Uh, But have you gotten American humanitarian aid? No. Uh, And it's just uh, something that I hope Congress takes a hard look. You know, they've appropriated, I think it's almost $3 billion in humanitarian aid. We did these heaters with a little over $250,000. What they could do with that $3 billion in humanitarian aid to help alleviate the suffering of the Ukrainian people this this winter uh, would be uh, life-changing for millions of people. But it isn't there. Why? I I think it's just our government is utterly incompetent. You know, the Congress passes an appropriation. What happens to that appropriation? Yeah. You know, and we've tried to track some of it and nudge people. And, you know, a lot of it went to USAID. USAID, as we understand it, went to a Washington consulting firm to ask them to run a program of humanitarian aid. That consulting firm has never done anything like this before, but they're Washington insiders. They're in the process of putting together something where you can apply to qualify to apply for an RFP when they get the RFP together. The bottom line is it's bureaucratic bull. Yeah. Uh, And while people are starving and freezing to death, the money is sitting there somewhere not getting to the people who need it. And That's so frustrating. It's so, it's so typical of our government. You know, and, and it's this is not the politicians. This is the bureaucrats who just, I mean, like, I don't even know today if uh, federal government employees are required to show up at work or not. You know, they, they haven't been, I know, until a couple of months ago. And, 
you, your job is safe if you don't do anything. If you do something that gets somebody angry, you know, you could be criticized. So it's just we need a dramatic change in our government. And Janice, I don't want to be downbeat here. You know, I, I'm optimistic. I know. This is a great country, but we have a horrible government. Uh, and and the people are doing well despite that. Imagine what we do if we had a halfway competent government, and hopefully one of these days we will. Well, and that's why people can be upset because they're not seeing the money go to where it needs to go. No, it's just it's it's just not. And uh, you know, it, it's it's tragic that uh, so many of the elected officials are more concerned about demonizing the other side right or or looking backward like i mean how many hearings on january 6th uh uh did they need to have i understand it was a horrible thing it shouldn't have happened and those who were criminally involved should be held accountable uh but what about the fact that our energies our borders are a catastrophe our energy situation is terrible and we're begging venezuela giving them billions to produce oil. What about the fact that the American people have lost confidence in their government? Don't you think that was worthy of having one hearing, yeah. the border? So it's just, it's just really unfortunate. Don't go anywhere. We'll have more of the Janice Dean podcast right after this. Fox News Radio On Demand on the Fox News app. Download the app and just click listen. When you swipe left, you can listen to your favorite Fox News talk shows live. Swipe right for the latest Fox News Radio newscasts on demand. Fox News Radio on the Fox News app. Download it today. You've been to Ukraine several times now. What is it like over there? Not many people can say that they've seen it firsthand. Well, you know, I don't want to make it sound like I'm a war hero when I was on the front line. No, we but you we are go. going yourself. We were in Ukraine, yes. We didn't go near where the fighting is. But uh, from the first time we went, like eight or nine days after the war started to early December, when the most recent time we were there, I noticed three changes. The first one, first time I went, we were in western Ukraine, and there were roadblocks, there were bunkers, there were sandbags and people with uh, uh, soldiers with automatic weapons and body armor in the streets in front of the state capitol, up the steps at the state capitol, outside the governor's office. And we met with the government officials. And at that point, they didn't know if the Russians were going to break through. And they were getting ready to fight in the streets of the city in western Ukraine if they had to do it. And, and they were committed. You know, hey, if Kiev falls, if this falls, we're going to fight in the streets of our city. Uh, this time, we went back to that city, among other places. None of that. All the, the roadblocks and the bunkers and the, the sandbags and the military personnel were gone because they've stopped the Russians. And they mm -hmm. don't have the fear that the Russians are going to be able to break through and uh, uh, conquer or attack all of Ukraine. But there were two other differences. One is we get to the border. And we can't cross because the power's out. Mm -hmm. uh, that wasn't the case before. And the Russian attacks on the Ukrainian infrastructure is succeeding in, uh, in a horrible way, but it's succeeding that uh, the power blackouts are very real. That didn't happen the first time we were there, but we experienced it literally the moment we got there. There was power outages. And then we delivered these 15 massive heating units. And we had a couple of other events in other cities we were going to, and the air raid sirens went off because the Russian rockets and drones were not just uh, uh, attacking on the front lines. They were attacking civilian infrastructure all over the country. So we had to cancel some of the events. So so what you read in the papers about the, the bomb attacks and the drone attacks and the rocket attacks uh, all over the country, 
that is real. And it wasn't the case when we first went there. And when you read about the impact on the infrastructure and the power system, that is real. And we didn't see that the first time. But the one thing that has been constant, and I'm talking too long here, but no, the one no, thing that has been constant the whole way through are the Ukrainian people. Mm. You know, the first time we went there, we went to a school that had been converted into a shelter for uh, families who had fled from the east. And it was all women and children. The men are all fighting. And you talk to them and... Uh, they had nothing, you know, sleeping on the floor. They just had the clothes they brought with them. They had food because people were getting them food. And we asked them, what can we do to help? And to a person, they said, we don't need anything. We're fine. My husband's back east fighting. My son is in the south fighting the Russians. Help them. Get us weapons. We'll be fine. And, and, you know, it's the opposite of here where everybody's a victim. There are people who truly were victims, didn't see themselves as that. They saw them as part of a cause wow. where it was their duty not to beg for help for themselves, but to get help for their for the, the soldiers who were fighting against the Russians. And this time when we were there in early December, it's the same thing. We visited places like that. Nobody was asking for help from themselves. It's, it's more, you have to help us close the skies. That's the term they used every time, that stop the rockets, stop the drones, give us the anti-aircraft uh, uh, things that we need. And, and the resiliency and the strength of the Ukrainian people is inspiring. Mm -hmm. you know? and, and they're just committed. They're going to win this thing. And whatever it takes... Uh, it's their country. They're defending their country, and they're not going to stop until they're confident that they have a safe, secure, intact country. And uh, the Ukrainian people deserve an enormous amount of credit. What do you think is going to happen? Oh, boy. <laughs> Janice, I wish I had a crystal ball. but uh, Well, this you know, war was only supposed to you know, last a couple of days. The Russians were supposed to win, and the fact that they are still there is a true David and Goliath story. It is. I mean, uh, I had lunch a while back with Condoleezza Rice, and she was talking about how when the Russians attacked Kiev, they had three days' supplies and their dress uniforms for a victory parade through the streets of Kiev. Wow. They literally thought it was going to be less than a week, and Ukraine would collapse. And so did the U.S. government. That's why the Biden administration said, we'll fly you out. And that great line, I don't need a, a, a ride, I need ammunition, that Zelensky right. came up with. Uh, but the tragedy, though, is you know, World War I was only supposed to last a couple of weeks, yeah. and it was a— horrible catastrophe for civilization. And, you know, I don't see an imminent end to this. I think the Ukrainians have got to have the support to be able to push the Russians back much further from where they are now. I, I think we have to continue to support them and give them more powerful and effective military weapons. I think we have to continue to do everything we can to sanction the Russians. Uh, and ultimately, you know, I think Russia has to see the handwriting at the wall that not only are they not going to win, but if this continues, they're going to lose. And at that point, hopefully, uh, people could sit down and negotiate a settlement that ends this. But, you know, hopefully it happens tomorrow. I, I'm not holding my breath. Yeah. If you could talk to President Biden, what would you tell him? The Ukrainians need to win this, uh, and the Russians need to understand that the Ukrainians are going to win this. If they need more anti-aircraft stuff so that they can shoot down the drones and shoot down the rockets that the Russians are sending, if they need the firepower to be able to attack the Russians where they are, beyond the front lines, uh, we have to give it to them. Uh, and, and 
not to ultimately humiliate and destroy Russia, but so that Putin gets the message they're going to lose mm -hmm. if they continue. And it's only when they get that message that they're going to lose if this continues that they will be willing, hopefully, to sit down and say, okay, how do we end this? You're so passionate about this. How did you get to be passionate? You know, it's just right versus wrong. Yeah. You know? I mean, my grandparents grew up on the Ukrainian border. But they're not Ukrainian, and they're Hungarian, and the Hungarians and Ukrainians never got along. Right. And it's funny. When I went there the first time, the government officials – I had been there for human rights missions on behalf of the Hungarian minority in Ukraine. And the Ukrainian officials knew that, you know, so I'm kind of a suspicious guy going into <laughs> Ukraine, the guy who was critical of their government. Yeah. And we talked about it. I talked about some of the laws and everything. And, and at the end, we were laughing, you know, because I'm still – Concerned about the Hungarian minority in Ukraine, but this is different. This is a war, yeah. and, and it's a war between good and evil. I mean, uh, uh, Ukraine is a democratic, Western-leading leaning country that wants to be friends with America. Russia's allies are North Korea, Iran, and to some extent China, and that tells you all you need to know. It's it's really good versus evil, and yeah. and. You have to choose sides. Yeah. And, and so so I still talk to the Ukrainians when I'm there, and they give me grief about the Hungarian, and I give them grief <laughs> about the Ukrainian. But we laugh about it because in a war you set it aside. Oh. And, and, and that's a fight, a discussion for another day. The discussion right now is how Ukraine wins this war. Yeah, and I think as Americans, you know what? If you have the Ukraine flag on your Twitter handle, you need to – you need to support and know what's going on with your U.S. government and the fact that the money is not getting there. Yes, and I, I hope, you know, I get it from all my – I'm surrounded by Democrats in here. As you know, Janice, my friends are all liberal Democrats, and I'm not. But that's and a good thing. It we is need a good more thing. of you. you. You need that dialogue, too, and you need to be open-minded. And they're always giving me grief. All the Republicans aren't, aren't going to support UK. Look at what Kevin McCarthy said. And I looked at what Kevin McCarthy said. He said we need an audit of what's happening to the billions of dollars we're sending there. He's yeah. absolutely right. Yeah. You know, I don't have any problem with that. You know, we should have that. We should know that we're appropriating billions, that it's getting where it's supposed to get. Yes. Not where it's banishing somewhere either into the wrong hands or to bureaucratic bogging down nonsense. Mm -hmm. So so I don't have any problem with that at all. It's appropriate to take a hard look when we're spending billions of dollars, but it's not appropriate to wonder if we're on the right side. We are on the right side. Mm. It's a good way to think of it. Don't go anywhere. We'll have more of the Janice Dean podcast right after this. And so what did you, what are you doing over the holidays with your family? I'll tell you, it's great. We're having, you know, my 10 grandkids, five of them live in Texas. So I'm, oh. we're only going to see them by Zoom or FaceTime or something like that, which is, which is sad. But uh, we'll see them when they're off from school in the spring. We'll go down and spend a week with them. But the other five and everybody else in our family are all going to be there. My nieces and nephews and their kids are coming, and uh, and you know it's just it's a, it's a wonderful time for us, you know, mm -hmm. to have everybody at home. We have the most beautiful Christmas tree we've ever had, and 
we pretended that the grandkids could pick it out, but we actually we kind of— <laughs> I won't know, tell them. Oh, uh, two years ago, our <laughs> granddaughter— Picked out a Christmas tree that was so little. Oh, <laughs> like a Charlie Brown Christmas tree? Yeah, like a tree? Charlie Brown Christmas tree, but we decorated it and pretended, oh, isn't this nice? This year, you know, we kind of guided the decision that they ultimately made to the right tree. We have a beautiful tree, but it, it's just always a wonderful time for us. You know, uh, the kids have been good, so Santa Claus comes. And and uh, and then, you know, I'm, I'm an upstate country guys so you know around the first january 1st we have a farm up in the adirondacks on lake champlain oh where it's beautiful 20 below half the time <laughs> i but, know i'm from canada i know what oh, that's like yeah. yeah but we're gonna go there you know and spend a few days we have a lot of friends up there we'll have a fire going we'll freeze to death but uh <laughs> but that's okay you know because you know it's it's not permanent, and we could always go into a heated house. And, right. And some of the Ukrainians sadly can't, but uh, yeah. But uh, but so so we'll spend New Year's up in the Adirondacks, freezing, but having fun. Oh, that's a good. That's a good thing. <laughs> yeah. What do you tell people who want to get into government? I think it's an extremely re- rewarding experience, and it's wide open. Hmm. You know, you think, oh my God, there's all these powerful people and all these structures and anything if you're willing to work uh, uh, and volunteer and go in and learn and work and help it's like the seas part uh, uh, I remember when I started you know nobody really knew who I was or anything and I just started at the bottom you know going door to door registering Republicans in my hometown of Peekskill for my party because they hadn't done it in neons and they said hey this guy you know Works, And I remember from my campaigns, people would show up, lots of people, many of them, you know, just did a little bit and that was fine. It helped. But there'd be a handful who really cared and who really worked. And then when they did, we said, hey, wait a second, we want to keep you. Uh, We win this election. You know, we're going to have the ability to have some people on a payroll. And you're a worker. We want you. And, And then, you know, if you're a worker, if you care and are passionate and willing to put in the time, you can amount to anything. I mean, I became governor. You know, this kid from Peekskill, New York, you know, whose father was a mailman and we had no money and I had never raised any money. But, you know, you work hard. People see that uh, you're capable of doing things. So so I would encourage people to go into politics. I would really? encourage Absolutely. I, I think it's tragic if we leave it to the the self-centered, egocentrical, I'm great, so I have to run for office types. I think people who just care as opposed to think they're the best thing in the history of the world uh, make a much better class mm. of elected and political people. I hope so, too. I always say that I, I really would love to see more of that, people that have gone through something in their life and say they want to make a difference and those are the people I want to look to, you know, not the dynasty politicians that think they have to, you know, they're born on third base already. Yeah, exactly right. Or uh, like our president who's done nothing in his life since he was in his early 20s except hold public office. What does he know about how people not in the political world, not celebrities because they have a political office live? I fear not too much. Mm, I hope so, too. I, And you're a New York guy. Have you ever thought about moving to Florida? Yep. <laughs> and Texas. <laughs> you know, and, and you know, I, I get so disgusted sometimes. I just go, what am I doing here? 
You know, I really do. And I'm being honest, Janice, which is rare for me. But, uh, <laughs> uh, but you know, I think about it constantly. And I know, you know, it makes no sense to be here. You know, it is so much more expensive. The taxes are horrific. Uh, you know, the, the it's getting out of one of the airports here. You know, we visit our, our son down in Texas. You know, it's you have to get there 15 minutes ahead of time and you just zip right through. You get here, you get here three hours ahead of time, you might not make it, you yeah. know, and you think, why am I doing this? But I always conclude, I'm a New Yorker. I can't Aww. do it. You know, I love it here for all the chaos, for all the insanity, for all the difficulties. You know, I just can't leave. I love this state. I, I mean, this crazy city. I love this city. You know, <laughs> you know, I'll walk down Sixth Avenue where we are and some crazy person will harass me. And, you know, you get mad, but you shrug it off, you know, and, and just say, it is so great. It's worth putting up with all this nonsense. And I still feel that way. Sadly, a lot of my friends didn't, a lot yeah. of who didn't have this commitment to New York, uh, a lot of them just left. And and they they say, why are you there? You're an idiot. And I go, well, maybe I am, but I love New York. So, so I'm here. <laughs> You're an optimistic guy. Yeah, I am. I, I mean, I think this is an optimistic country. Uh, I really do. It's always, America's always been about the future. And, you know, I'm so pessimistic about our government. But I look at the next 10 years. Uh, they just had this successful experiment with fusion power. I thought we're going to have unlimited clean energy in the next 10 to 15 years. We're going to cure cancer and Alzheimer's in the next 10 to 15 years. We're going to have transportation modes we can't even dream of today. And it's not because of the government. It's largely in spite of the government. But uh, uh, the American people have always been dreamers. They've always been people who want, look at the next frontier to conquer uh, and, and think and experiment and try and succeed and fail. Uh, and that's still America. And it's still New York. And, and we're going to still see unbelievable successes and breakthroughs in spite of the government. Mm, I love that. I love that about you, that you're optimistic. I feel like we need more Governor Patakis that, you know, that have friends that are liberals and Democrats. You can sit down and have a meal and just be a human being instead of always be you're the enemy. Yeah, that's right. And it was never that way. You know, I mean, I was at Columbia when we had two of the three years we had revolution. You know, literally the school was shut down. The police were on the campus. Fires were everywhere. People actually literally got killed and there were pitch fights and everything. And I get along with everybody. You know, I was this at a time when the newspaper endorsed a Black Panther radical, Eldridge Cleaver, for president. And, and the debate was not between liberals and conservatives. It was between socialists and Marxists. It was literally that crazy. It was the most radical campus uh, in the country. And I sat there loving it because I'd sit there and debate everything with everybody. And they, and, and they actually— respected the fact that I didn't run away or hide in a corner or just go along with the crowd. And so so that's been my experience in my life, you know, being kind of surrounded by people who don't necessarily agree. But there's no reason why you can't like each other and, and, and try to understand their viewpoint and then show them how they're idiots. Yeah. I, <laughs> Respectfully show them how they're idiots. Has anybody asked you to run for governor again? <laughs> I, I yes, uh, a few times. Of course times. they have. <laughs> of course they have. Yeah. Would you do it? <laughs> uh, you know, I, I 
am smart enough and experienced enough to know never say never. But I think there are a lot of really good young rising stars who have the ability to uh, to lead the state, lead the country, uh, and make things better. And you would help them. Yes. Yeah. Definitely. You know, I if you care, you have to help. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for spending time with me. You are really good man. Uh, and I thank you for your honor a couple of months ago. Uh, I, I got the invitation to to come to that wonderful event on the anniversary of 9-11. Uh, and, and I, you know, I'm honored that you even thought about me for a Pataki Award. Well, Janice, uh, what you've done to raise the awareness of the, the horrific consequences of the nursing home policies of Andrew Cuomo has been inspiring to me. And, and hopefully we haven't gotten the answers yet. Mm. We haven't gotten accountability yet. But because of people like you, you know, hopefully we will. And you do, you earned that for what you did uh, in raising that issue to the level that it was. And, uh, you know, our little Pataki Center, every September 11th, we honor one or two or three people who unsung heroes who helped so much to make this city and state and country a better place. And uh, now we've morphed to try to help with Ukraine, but uh, we're going to continue the September 11th wards. And oh. thank you for being there. It was, everybody enjoyed seeing you and your husband. Oh, I loved it. My husband was really honored to be there as well. I mean, and for somebody that was there on 9-11 too, yeah. you know yeah. yeah, what a special day that is. Always. Yeah. And how we have to remember that. And that's another sad thing, how so few people, uh, particularly young people, are aware. And, you know, I know I'm on overtime here, but with the border, I fear we're going to have another terrorist attack. Mm. And it's going to be people who came across the border illegally because we don't control it. And uh, I'm not going to forget about September 11th and the horror of that day. And, and Afghanistan, and our Afghanistan. withdrawal. Afghanistan. Uh, After yes. 20 years being there. Oh, and there are still Americans there. And there are still good Americans trying to help get them out because our government isn't doing the job. So, so, but it's America. You know, we're going to have a new year. Uh, we're going to have a new house in Washington. And, and you can't help but, uh, as always, look at the new year and say, Things are going to get better. Yeah. And you're a good example of the American dream and really somebody that tried to make a difference and really did. Well, thank you. Thank you. And I had a lot of really good people helping me make that difference. Uh, well, thank you for being here today. And Happy New Year, my friend. Uh, thank you, Janice. And Happy New Year to you. And good luck in the cold. Good luck in the cold. <laughs> I might join you. Come up. <laughs> you know, just just make sure you bundle up before you do. It does get cold up there. <laughs> Thank you so much, Governor. Thank you, Janice. I Happy appreciate New Year. it. You too. Thank you, Governor Pataki, for joining me today on the Janice Dean Podcast. And if you would like to see some of the incredible work the Pataki Leadership and Learning Center is doing, you can head to their website at georgepatakicenter.com. Thank you to all of my listeners. If you have someone you think should make the Dean's List, let me know at Janice Dean on Twitter or Janice Dean FNC on Instagram. Or you can rate this podcast. Please subscribe, rate, and review to this podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or at foxnewspodcast.com. Listen ad-free with a Fox News Podcast Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts. And Amazon Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on the Amazon Music app. And don't forget to spread the sunshine.
Jason in the House, the Jason Chaffetz Podcast. Dive deeper than the headlines and the party lines as I take on American life, politics, and entertainment. Subscribe now on foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you download podcasts.